From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. And as 2014 rapidly fades into history, I just want to say thank you to all of you for your support, your loyalty, your interest, and your passion. And of course, to you and yours from me and the mighty Aphrodite and the twins, our very warmest wishes for a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah. This has been an exciting year for The Conspiracy Show, both on on radio and television. The television show, Season 3, successfully aired across Canada on Vision TV. And special thanks to my partner, Jalal Murray, and the whole Murray family and Film One uh, for making the TV program happen. I'm I'm very proud of it. And Jalal, we faced a lot of adversity and logged a lot of miles, ate in too many Denny's, and slept in a few dodgy hotels along the way. But it was great fun. And I can't wait to get out on the road uh, with you again and film more interviews for Season 4. A special thanks also to Joan Jenkinson and, of course, executive producer Moses Neimer for your support. And, uh, well, your vision. (laughs) Uh, The TV show also has made major inroads in terms of international sales. It's now available in the United States in well over 200 markets and growing. And the show is now available in Europe, parts of Africa, and we recently sold the show in Australia. So, onwards and upwards. Uh, The radio side of uh, things, the radio program, The Conspiracy Show, uh, I want to say thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for uh, technical production. Uh, 2014 also saw the addition of a new member to our team, Albert Vinzel is my new story producer, and he also runs our HOAs, our Google Hangouts on air. We do from time to time. And Albert is uh, spearheading the development of a new conspiracy show app uh, for iPhone and uh, Android devices. So hopefully we'll uh, get that uh, launched sometime early in 2015. And, of course, we continue to add new affiliates in the United States. We're now in about 30 markets. Uh, so special thanks to Chris Whitting, and his wonderful team at Syndication Networks out of Chicago. They are so loyal and so supportive, I can't begin to tell you. Uh, Our resident paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, is standing by for our final paranormal news roundup of 2014. Some truly fascinating stories in the news of a paranormal nature. Uh, A paranormal investigator who visited a haunted location in southern Iowa which was the scene of a grisly axe murder in the early 20th century, ended up stabbing himself in the chest during the investigation for some inexplicable reason, and we'll try to get to the bottom of that, Uh, plus a possible Bigfoot sighting in merry old England, of all places. Uh, Another case of a child recalling a past life, this one uh, reportedly the past life of a U.S. Marine killed in 1983, Uh, and we'll talk about the presence of something called angel hair, at a, a recent UFO sighting in Portugal. Rosemary Ellen Guiley at the bottom of the hour. Uh, first of all, uh, last month at my Follow the Truth conference in Oshawa, I met a gentleman, uh, an inventor, who handed me a booklet he's published. Uh, it's about a super carburetor, uh, the history of its development, and newspaper articles about others who have created the same super fuel injection system. And I, I read the booklet, uh, which is called 100 Miles to the Gallon Super Fuel Injection System. Let me repeat that, because you heard me correctly. 100 Miles to the Gallon Super Fuel Injection System. Uh, and he says he successfully designed and built such a system, and he wants the world to know such devices can be created. Uh, now, here's the thing. Not only, he says, can we dramatically increase fuel efficiency... But the fuel these engines burn is virtually pollution-free. No emissions. 
or no uh, toxic emissions. Uh, there's only one problem, and you can probably guess what that is. Uh, big oil. Uh, and the uh, the corrupt politicians that do their bidding, he says, uh, are doing everything in their power to prevent such technology from being mass-produced uh, and uh, preventing it from coming to market. So, let's talk about the 100-mile-per-gallon super fuel injection system. Bruce McBurney, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. I'm doing excellent, Richard. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. I'm just sorting through this material, reams and reams of material that, that you sent me, and I'm looking at some headlines from some old newspapers. The El Paso Times, dated 1977, 200 miles on two gallons of gas. Uh, then there, there's another uh, headline here from the Desert News staff, uh, the, the Desert News, uh, pollution-free device powered by amazing fuel, uh, inventors say. Uh, another one here, experts probe Ogle fuel system, Ogle fuel system, no hoax. Uh, what's this all about, Bruce? What are we talking about, this super high mileage uh, fuel injection system? Well, I've been hearing these things all my life, and then when I was a kid, I heard about this uh, guy in El Paso, Texas, and that kind of spurred me on. Um, basically, there's been many stories of inventors coming out with devices, and they would call them vapor carburetors. And they would get like five times the gas mileage. The guy in Texas was driving a 351 cubic inch Ford Galaxy. And I have 47 different newspaper articles just on him alone. Basically, what they were doing is they weren't just vaporizing the gasoline. I found and actually proved at the university that they were cracking gasoline into natural gas and methanol. And uh, this is why they would get five times the gas mileage pollution-free, because now they were burning two of the cleanest fuels going, natural gas and methanol. When you say they're cracking it, you mean the molecules uh, or the, the atoms of... Well, no, not the atoms, the molecules. The molecules. They're yeah. cracking it yeah, and it's creating... All, it, it, it's like putting an onboard oil refinery on your car, where you're taking that gasoline and refining it down into its finest form, natural gas. Uh, natural gas, propane, gasoline, diesel, they're all the same. They're hydrocarbons. And just depends on how long the chain is, depends on what it is. If it's a singular carbon, C1H4, that's natural gas. If it's three carbons, it's propane. If it's six through 12, that's gasoline. 12 through 20 is uh, diesel fuel. And you know that long, stringy grease that they use in the wheel bearings? Well, that can be several hundred carbon molecules joined together in a nice long chain. That's what gives it the string effect. So the idea here is is uh, to burn, to uh, to burn, or to heat the gasoline up so that it vaporizes. How does this work exactly? Well, actually, the original things, and if you look at most of the patents, what they said it was a vaporizing carburetor, like uh, boiling or atomizing the gasoline, because gasoline does not burn in a liquid state. If you had a half a can of gasoline and you threw a match at it, it would only be the vapors on the top that burn. The liquid doesn't burn. So they were saying if they pre-vaporized it, they would basically uh, get this better mileage. But I actually did that, and I found, well, even if you pre-vaporize it, it still will have the same boiling point, and when you compress it, it reliquifies. But when you crack it, you change the molecular structure into a lower boiling point fuel that will not reliquify. Like with natural gas, it takes a 1,000 pounds of pressure to reliquify it where 200 pounds in a cylinder isn't enough to reliquify, so when your spark fires, the gas explodes, and you go all his mileage. 
100 miles to the gallon. Now, have you have you recreated one of these? Uh, yes, actually, I had a 76 Dodge Maxi van, 360 cubic inch V8, getting between 70 and 80 miles per gallon, according to the mileage computer. But it was like the Wright Brothers airplane. It proved the principle, but a dangerous piece of crap. And I have no suicidal tendencies, so what I did, I, you know, I just couldn't get it to go any further. It's like people say, oh, you can do this, build me a Learjet. Well, it took a long time to get from the Wright brothers to the Learjet. Sure, sure. And so what I did with this van, because I just couldn't get it to run consistency, I got the head of the chemistry department at Brock University intrigued, showed him a bunch of books and patents, and he actually set it up. So we analyzed the gas proving I was making methane, natural gas. And when we had this done, he said, oh, this is no problem. We'll get you a $100,000 research grant. So I waited and waited. He never called me back, so I called him up. I said, Professor, what's happening with the grant? He says, oh, I'm sorry. I can't get you a nickel. It's not chemistry. It's politics. (laughs) And furthermore, I don't want to be involved in your research. I have my health and my family to be concerned with. He said that to you? Yes, sir. And at the time, I just thought somebody was sick in the family. But it wasn't until later on that I, because, like, I was very open when he says, oh, you want to keep this quiet? I says, no, we got to tell everybody. I don't worry about my patent getting stolen. If somebody steals it, at least it gets out of the market. Right. And so you don't worry about becoming another Stanley Myers? Well, no, I, you know, uh, I, I'm a Christian. If they kill me, I'll wake up in heaven. <laughs> That's my attitude. Right, right. And I had a guy threaten me, and I told him that. And they can't really threaten me because I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid for what's going to happen for our children if we all have, because, you know, I mean, so as I say, if you saw somebody shooting your grandchildren in the head, you're going to get off your ass and do something. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, you know, right now with gasoline, uh, you know, just hovering above, what is it, 65, or oil above $65 a barrel, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of fuel may be not set front and center with a lot of people. Uh, no. But you're more concerned about the, the, the pollution. Well, these people that say we don't have global warming but have no idea what a chemtrail is are just morons. Uh, you know, they've been using these chemtrails to spray stuff particulate in the atmosphere to reflect the sunshine back to slow down global warming. And they've been doing it for 10 or 15 years. And in the last 10 years, it's gotten colder, so it works. And people say, you're crazy. And I go, well, I'm crazy. So is the guy who wrote the patent in the patent office then, because there's a patent on chemtrails, and there it says right in the patent, to a reflective material to slow down global warming. Well, why, if we don't have global warming, do we got to worry about it? But we do, and they are worrying about it. They're just not letting anybody know. So this uh, this professor that you approached, mm-hmm. this scientist, uh, he was going to offer you $100,000. That, well, that... he was going to try and, and get me right. 100000 And that quickly know. disappeared. I mean, have... Yeah. have you know what the old Stanley Meyer story where people oh, yeah. showed up and, and and tried to buy it from him. Has anyone from Big Oil tried to buy your uh, your super fuel injection system and so they could put it on a shelf somewhere? No, actually, years ago when I went to the government and I was talking to the people in the Ministry of Energy and the Ministry of Natural Resources, and they had me go through and talk to all these PhDs, and they knew what the hell I was talking about. Then they said to me, "Well, what do you want to do with the technology?" And I said, looked at them, they're crazy. I said, well, I want it on a market. I want my children to have air to breathe, and I don't care if I don't make five cents. Well, that was the end of our conversation. I couldn't be bought.
Bruce McBurney is with us, and uh, uh, we should tell people how they can get a hold of your uh, secret super high mileage report. 100 miles to the gallon, 3 liters per 100 kilometer super fuel injection system. We're heading into a break, but before we do that, Bruce, tell us how we can get a copy of this. Well, my website is HIMACresearch.com. Spell that. Him Acre Search. Him Acre Search is all the same way comes it out. Uh, HIMAC, H-I-M-A-C, and the word research.com. And uh, not only I made my book, Money Back Guarantee, for $20, I've sold over 2,600 copies and had only two refunds. I put 95% of it on the book for free. And that's where things got interesting for me. And uh, could anyone using this, I mean, is there... There, I mean, there, there, there are lots of articles in here, but no schematics, really. I mean, is, is it possible to, to build one of these super fuel injection systems based on this report? Yes, and I've had people that bought the books and had more talent and money than I did, and they got to have them built. But the one guy sent me a picture of his pickup truck doing 75 mile a gallon, but he said, this is for your eyes only. I don't want the men in black showing up at my house 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, if you were to, is this just a case of modifying an existing internal combustion engine, or do you have to... Well, it's a major refit on the fuel system, because what you're doing is basically re building an onboard uh, refinery right. using the heat from the exhaust right. to help break the fuel down. It's a process called thermal catalytic cracking. I say to people, if you read my book and you don't understand, get any encyclopedia, read the section on oil refining, and all the light bulbs come on for everybody. All right, listen, we'll take a time out uh, and come back and continue to discuss the secret super high mileage report. Imagine 100 miles to the gallon, 3 liters per 100 kilometer super fuel injection system inventor Bruce McBurney with me right here in the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we're back with Bruce McBurney. How did you get into this, Bruce? How did you uh, start uh, researching the super fuel injection system? And, and, and um, I know that you, you, you invent a lot of uh, different uh, things, but how did you get into this area specifically? Well, I'd heard of this story from about Tom Ogle years ago. I was working electrical motor mechanic in a shop, and a guy from Scotland got his paper from back home. Well, it was in his paper, it was in the Hamilton Spec paper, but it wasn't in the Standard or the Niagara Falls paper. But then years later, I was out shopping with the wife, and I see this Farmer's Almanac magazine, so I'm looking through it, and there's an ad for this book, Secrets of the 200-mile-per-gallon carburetor. Well, this is a Farmer's Almanac. It's not the um, rag sheet, tabloid, you know, whatever they call them, that'll print anything. The Farmer's Almanac's been around for 100 years. I thought it had integrity. So I bought the book, and it listed, and it showed all these patents on these vapor carburetors, and I just wanted to find out the truth, so I just started building and playing with it myself. I've been fixing and playing with things since I was a kid, uh, and, you know, I'm, when I was 16 years old, I did TV service calls on my own, and I've just been fixing stuff, and I just wanted to find out, so I started building things, and I thought it was just a vapor carburetor, and you ask a hundred mechanics what the boiling point of gasoline is, and they don't have a clue. Well, this is to boil that gasoline. Well, they, you know, but uh, then you do all this. I did all the research trying to find out the boiling point, and that's when I started understanding the idea of breaking it down. Is it possible, rather than 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 heating it and creating a vapor, could you not 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to Stanley Meyer's water engine, and, and uh, a number of people have tried to recreate that, but uh, I spoke to an electrician, an electrical engineer, rather, uh, down in uh, Long Island who was working on his version of Stanley Meyer's water engine, and he was essentially cracking these water molecules with a... Uh, some sort of a electronic waveform, like a, I believe he called it a square pattern or something. Yeah, it was a square wave pattern. It was a frequency hitting the resonant frequency. Right. Could like, you do it that way? No. Uh, basically, uh, mine was uh, just a fuel cracking system using the heat and, and, and taking the vaporized gasoline and water. Right. Isn't and that volatile, though, and dangerous? Uh, well, I, I did all mine very safely. I mean, I was running at seven pounds, but before I did it, I heated it up as hot as it would go, and I pressure tested it at 100 pounds with an air compressor. So then I was running it with seven pounds of fuel. So, you know, I mean, it was, you know, a, quite a heavy-duty unit. I do things quite safe, but I had fire extinguishers and everything around. But, yeah, there was an element of danger, and then I realized that, you know, I, I just didn't have the brains or the financing to take it any further than what I did. I knew that it was possible, and I thought, well, if I put a book together, your mother-in-law can read and understand that eventually I, you know, would get some help. And I also knew that this had been suppressed before, so I wanted to make it a little bit of an insurance policy that, you know, the information was out there at least, you know. What, what, whatever happened to uh, this Ogle gentleman uh, that's written about in uh, um, various uh, newspapers. About a year after his run, he turned down the money from the oil companies. They said he came out of a bar and he got shot, and that didn't kill him. A couple, three months later, they found him dead in the middle of a um, this desert, and they called it a suicide. It was a drugs and alcohol overdose. Um, he and I actually sold one of my books to went to high school with Tom. Because, you know, this guy was in El Paso, and he grew up with Tom in high school, and then years later he was on the Internet, and he found all my information. So he got a book, and we were talking, and he says, yeah, Tom was very straight. He didn't do drugs. In fact, one of the magazine articles, the, the reporter said, what do you attribute your inventing skills to? And Tom replied, the fact that I practice kung fu, and I won't even take an aspirin. Ah, this is Tom Ogle we're talking about. Yeah, Tom Ogle. The day say he died of a drug and alcohol overdose. So he was suicided. Yeah, suicided. That's a good term for it. And and you said Big Oil approached him. How much did they offer him? Uh, according to the newspaper article, it was twenty five million. Twenty, and he turned it down. Yeah. Well, I have a friend right now that's sitting in a Montana jail, and his website's Gadget Man Groove, Ron Hatton. He turned down forty million dollars last year, and they put drugs on him, and he's been in jail ever since uh, February. But he, was he was he trying to yeah, he's patent the same type of device? Well, he, he did get a patent on it. It's, it's a different thing, and it's not the 100 mile per gallon. It's just a small modification they make to the carburetor throttle body. If you go to GadgetManGroove.com or on YouTube, he's got GadgetManGlobal is his handle, and he's got all kinds of testimonials, people that have gotten 50% and doubled their gas mileage. You know, some cars it don't work on, and some cars it works really great on. It's kind of a, it depends on your intake manifold. But, um, yeah, the guy was out there for three, four years, and he was teaching other people how to do it, and they just pulled the rug right, well, you know, rug right out from him. And he's not the first. It was another guy, and, well, he just passed away last year, the Alan Cagiano story. He had a website, Get 113 to 138. And miles per gallon. Miles per gallon. He was driving a Dodge Coronet station wagon, 
And uh, they framed him for drugs. He proved the drugs weren't his, but they got him on a weapons charge. He did 10 years in jail. Can I uh, just uh, read, there's a, um, a letter here from a chemistry professor at, the, at Brock University. Can I just... Yeah, that's the professor that I worked with. But that letter was written after the fact he was threatened, only because I kept pestered him. And the letter is very wimpy for what he knew. Okay, let me just read it here. This is from Brock University. It's on Brock University letterhead. To whom it may concern, Mr. John Bruce McBurney of Niagara Falls, Ontario, has worked alone for a number of years to design, develop, and test a novel automobile carburetor. In this carburetor, gasoline aerosol produced conventionally is converted to gasoline vapor with the, the use of heat generated in the operation of the automobile engine. The gasoline vapor is mixed with water vapor and passed through a heated iron catalyst bed for conversion into lower molecular weight hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide. The lower molecular weight hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide serve as the fuel within the automobile engine. In his test vehicle, Mr. McBurney was able at, able at will to switch from normal operation to operation of the vehicle with hydrocarbon and carbon monoxide fuel. It goes on and on and on. And then it, it says, I have helped Mr. McBurney and will continue to help him scientifically, technical, technologically, and financially because of the great benefits that his invention, if it is successful, will bring to society which is currently plagued by inefficiency and serious pollution. Signed, E.A. Cherniak, Professor of Physical Chemistry, and that's dated June 16th, 1989. That's Brock University. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this was after, he, I mean, he wrote this letter, but th- this was after he told you, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the health of my family. Yeah, so when he says, I'm worried about my family, I says, oh, I'm sorry, Professor, you've got to look after your family. But, you know, uh, we've done a lot of research, you know, and then I left him alone. Then I called him back months later, see how things were going and, you know, kind of getting the bum shuffle. And I said to him, well, okay, I understand you don't want to work it, but we did a lot of work. Can I get you to do a letter of, rec- you know, just to say what we did? Because, we see, we he says it should be given the opportunity. We had analyzed through gas chromatograph and ultraviolet spectrum analysis proving I was making natural gas. And when he said, when we had both of them done, he said, this is scientific proof. You're on to something. We'll have no problem getting you a $100,000 research grant. Well, then after they threatened it, I kept calling them back. Oh, could we get just get a letter? You know, and I'm a persistent little fellow. So I kept calling them back. And so he says, well, I guess I guess I could do something. Well, the test was done in December of 87. It wasn't until June of 89 the letter was written. I didn't get the letter till the fall of 89. And in the meantime, all this time, I got screwed around by the patent office because when I filed the patent in November of 87, uh, they said, oh, you've got two years under a caveat to file your patent. Well, I, you know, I got all depressed because I couldn't get anywhere. It was hitting your head against a brick wall. Right, right. So it was finally a year and a half later. I go, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and pursue the patent. And they come back and they says, oh, sorry, but we changed the law. And you only had one year. But at the time I filed it, I had two years. They changed the law. They never told me the law. And then I went up and I appealed it, drove all the way to Ottawa, appealed it. I went in with a bunch of books and a stack of patents. And the the guys come in and they're looking at all my stuff. And it turns out they're the guys on the tribunal. I present my information. They go, oh, well, you've got a very solid case. We'll give you our decision in two weeks. Two weeks later, sorry, nope, can't do it. Screw you. Uh, You have the option of going and filing to the Supreme Court. 
Well, I didn't have the kind of money to right. go to the Supreme Court. Now, right. if you're a criminal, you can get all kinds of money from legal aid. But if you're a homeowner, you can't get any money without them putting a lien on your house. So where are you at with this now, Bruce? Have you pretty much given up on this? Or? Oh, no, I, I just keep saying one of these days I'm going to find people that care and I'm going to help uh, get the financing out. And I've got a lot of other people fired into this stuff. And uh, the word's getting out. People are realizing, you know, that technology and things can change. And could they just, could I take a, I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, uh, take a brand new car and have this this uh, adjustment made because I'd, I guess I'd probably, uh, you know, void no, the warranty. I don't, don't want to so work on a brand new no. one. I always, I would go and buy a junker and sure. play with it. exactly. Know? I mean, could anyone buy a junker, take it to a garage, hand them your secret no. super high mileage report and have it made? No. Why not? Because most, well, that was the reason why I wrote the book. It's like I can explain to you how to build a refrigerator, but if they shot the guy who invented the refrigerator years ago and we were all using ice boxes, you'd spend thirty-five to $50,000 building that refrigerator that would break down in three months. But because it's mass-produced, you can go and buy one for 500 bucks, and it'll run 10 or 15 years. Right. That's the idea. You need you need these to be mass-produced, otherwise it's not economically feasible. Well, who's going to spend $10,000 on a carburetor with all the prototyping and everything to save $5,000 worth of fuel? Right. That's what it would cost. Yeah, well, I, 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 I don't know what it would cost in the final thing. I know when I did my van, I spent a few thousand dollars in about three months of my time. And I just had, you know, a piece of crap like the Wright brothers. But it did prove the point, and I did know now that, hey, this can be done. But I, And at the time, I thought it was a control issue. I was thinking you need a computer control, and I didn't have the technology and, or, you know, even the price for what a computer was back then. Now things are changed. You can get a PLC for 250 bucks to, you know, do something like this if you had a decent programmer. But I can't afford that. I've just basically, uh, you know, I... Is 100 miles to the gallon, is that, is that about the upper limit? Let, let's say you were to put one of these on, a, let's say, a smart car. Could you get 200 miles to the gallon? Oh, no. A smart car would basically get uh, about 350. 350 miles to the gallon. Yeah. Well, in 1936, there was a guy in Winnipeg doing 200 miles per gallon. And uh, there's an article, uh, oh, what it was, I'm trying to remember the year, 1973, I think it was, the Shell Mileage Marathon car went 369 miles per gallon in a 2,500-pound car. Oh, my. Yeah, the, 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 the mileage record is something around 8,000 miles per gallon. And I'm guessing that all of the automakers know that this is possible, and uh, they're essentially... Yeah, you well, know, they're not going to budge because by the oil companies and the drug companies and the same people and the bankers, and it's all controlled with the oil. And this, I have one CD-ROM that a fellow put together because he went through my website, and in my website there's an article called "Research for the Scholarly" that this other fellow wrote, and he couldn't get it published. Well, it was explaining the hundred mile per gallon, and it lists 569 different patented fuel saving systems. Now, many of them are bought up by the oil companies. Now, if it doesn't work, why would you patent it? On average, it takes one year's salary. It don't matter 1919 or 1969. Whatever the average one-year salary is about right. what a patent costs. Precisely. Listen, Bruce, we're, we're out of time, but we've, we've got to talk about this again very, in, in the time that remains very quickly. How do people get a copy of the Secret Super High Mileage Report? Go to my website, HiMacResearch.com, or you can call me. My phone number is 905-358-8541. 
I just take the time. I explain it to anybody that calls. I just want the truth to know. I get people fired up. They're out there telling other people. And one okay. of these days, it's got to get out there. All right. Well, we'll do our part as well, and we'll have you back on. Thank you so much for this, Bruce. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, you're quite welcome. And I got a lot of other things I've learned uh, just because I shared that out. That we, we will talk. Things. <laughs> Rest assured, we will talk. Bruce All McBurney. Right. Coming up next, Rosemary Ellen Guiley in our Paranormal, Paranormal News Roundup. Richard Serrett, The Conspiracy Show. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Doing well, Richard. I'm at my year's end break. I'm uh, out in Southern California enjoying the nice sunny uh, weather, but I'm also doing research and investigation. So, uh, a uh, little bit of business and pleasure at the same time. Well, that's good. Here's the thing, though. I want you to be careful on these uh, paranormal investigations because some pretty strange things can happen. And, and uh, of course, we're now familiar, you and I, with this case in southwestern Iowa at a place called the Axe Murder House uh, where a paranormal investigator ends up stabbing himself in the chest. Tell me about this story. This is uh, This is very disturbing. This is such a peculiar story, and a lot of things about it just don't add up. Now, the Velisca Axe Murder House is famous, and paranormal investigators love to go there because they almost always get some sort of evidence. It was the scene of a horrible mass killing in 1912, where a husband and wife and their children and two other children, so eight people altogether, were found uh, murdered in their beds, they had been bludgeoned to death on the heads with an axe. Oh, and a killer was never found. There were suspects, there was an inquest, no one was ever uh, charged with the crime and uh, convicted of it. So it's remained a mystery. And of course, many paranormal investigators think that um, there's uh, at least residual energy of the, these poor souls who had such brutal ends. Well, this case now where a paranormal investigator uh, stabbed himself in the chest a little over a month ago. Robert Lorson. Um, Robert Lorson is his name. At 37 years old mm -hmm. from Wisconsin. He was part of a small group investigating there. And um, so according to the news report, he was alone in a room in the house. The house is not that big. And uh, the other members of the group heard him cry out for help. This was about 1 o'clock on a Friday morning. And uh, they rush into the room and find him critically wounded, apparently having stabbed himself in the chest with a knife. Uh, well, first, uh, it, it was an unidentified object. Uh, I guess we have to assume it, it uh, was a knife. And he was taken to the hospital. And mysteriously, the story drops out of the news at that point. Now, this is over a month ago, so you'd think we would have some sort of follow-up on this in yes. terms of how he was faring, was he released, what happened, what's his side of the story. It just falls off the radar. So very peculiar. Now, um, it is true, and I'm, I'm going to have to speculate here, but it is true that there are some paranormal investigators who are willing to go to extremes in order to try and provoke phenomena. And this includes uh, even attempting to recreate uh, deaths in places like this. In fact, there was a show some years ago called Extreme um, Paranormal or something like that where the investigators... Um, even set themselves on fire, try to drown themselves. 
to try and contact uh, the spirits of people who had died horrible deaths. And was that what this fellow was trying to do, was was recreate uh, uh, a death by, um, you know, being uh, bludgeoned to death with an axe? He didn't have an axe, apparently, but um, we don't know because uh, he's not talking, nobody else is talking, and there's no follow-up to this story. That's so very I'm strange. I'm really mystified. That's just, that's just totally bizarre, where someone would actually willingly do harm to themselves in order to perhaps, uh, you know, cause some sort of a paranormal contact or, or what have you. Have you ever crossed it's paths with this, with this Robert Lorison, or is he kind of an amateur? Uh, I have not, and uh, he's one of you know thousands and thousands of uh, paranormal uh, investigators, uh, uh, some of whom may not actually actually be investigators, but maybe just kind of paranormal enthusiasts who like to go to places like this in the hopes of having a thrill. And uh, this it's called extreme provocation, and there are people in the field who advocate doing this to uh, varying degrees uh, in in order to try and get uh, dramatic EVPs or uh, perhaps an apparition to manifest in a video or, or a photograph. It's just plain foolish. But That's what he was attempting to do. It's just plain foolish. Irresponsible, and it gives it gives respectable uh, paranormal investigators, you know, a, a bad name because everyone gets tainted with the same brush. I mean, that's just it's it's incredibly irresponsible. Uh, here's something else I think it's irresponsible. You and I have talked about Ouija boards, and of course, Christmas uh, fast approaching, and apparently, Ouija boards are a hot item. Um, I, I can't imagine, you know, unwrapping or, or giving someone a, a Ouija board as a present under a Christmas tree. And now exorcists, surprise, surprise, are issuing warnings about Ouija boards. You know, I love stories like this, Richard, because what they wind up doing when they uh, thunder on about the Ouija board is they just drive sales up even more and, and encourage more people to use the board. Uh, and so they're... They're accomplishing exactly the opposite of what they're trying to do. Exactly. But Listen, I got to Sorry, I got to jump in here, Rosemary. We got a, a break uh, coming up. We'll take the time out. Come back, and we'll continue to talk about Ouija boards, Bigfoot in uh, in the UK, and angel hair and UFOs in Portugal. Back with more. My conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley as we conduct our monthly paranormal news roundup. And we were talking about exorcists warning uh, about giving Ouija boards for Christmas. It's a very hot item. And as you point out so correctly, that uh, that only fans the flames and encourages more people to go out and buy Ouija boards. Well, it does. And we just had this uh, movie come out at Halloween called Ouija, which was another Hollywood horror story of, uh, you know, marauding spirits uh, acting out uh, via the Ouija board. And uh, so that really drove up a lot of sales. And I think that's what this uh, this article is the result. Um, but decades ago, Ouija boards were considered harmless toys. Uh, and they were originally made as entertainment uh, devices. In earlier times, they weren't considered to be demonic or evil. It's only been in recent times, and especially since Hollywood has demonized uh, these devices, that uh, people think that they're automatically bad things. And it, it's true, however, and I've talked to many people who've had very bad experiences with the Ouija board, so it's true that people can have bad experiences, but not everybody does. 
so um, these uh, exorcists and religious experts who speak out against the board uh, are often uh, doing so uh, without really knowing much of what the board is about. It's it's uh, one-sided sensationalism, and I don't like to see that either. Uh, something else that's causing quite a sensation, uh, reports of Bigfoot in Great Britain. Um, now, I've never heard of an encounter with a, with a Bigfoot. Strange mystery cats, panthers, yes, uh, uh, werewolves perhaps, but never Bigfoot in merry old England. What do you think about this story? Well, Bigfoot is everywhere, and there, there have been sightings of Bigfoot all over the world, including England. Uh, but the evidence here in this particular story, uh, put forth by a man named Adam Bird, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. And, uh, very strangely, he has not been willing to, an- or not so strangely, not been willing to answer a lot of media questions about his alleged evidence. He snapped a, a photograph. Uh, which shows a tiny little dark shape in it. And based upon the angle in the photograph and the proximity of the trees in the foreground, this is really a tiny little figure. Uh, it's not a big figure seen way in the distance. It is a small figure, and it looks like something that could be inserted onto a photograph. So the photograph itself is not real convincing. And he has uh, some very short clips of audio, which he claims are Bigfoot sounds. And uh, I don't find them to be convincing either. Um, Bigfoot has been uh, known on many occasions to uh, make knocking sounds. They're very sharp sounds. And the knocking sounds that he's got, um, well, we can't rule them out as potential Bigfoot. They're not real characteristic of the more sharp cracking sounds that these entities are alleged to make. And the other sounds just don't sound convincing at all. Bigfoot will um, make uh, kind of yelping sounds and um, horrible groaning sounds, but um, I didn't find these real convincing either. So Bigfoot in Britain, yes. Uh, Bigfoot is everywhere. Evidence at hand, not real convincing. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com, and we're in the midst of our monthly paranormal news roundup. Uh, this is something I've only heard about recently. In, in fact, at um, the conference I held uh, in, in Oshawa in November, uh, Don Schmidt was on stage talking about uh, Roswell, and uh, I believe it was someone in the audience asked him about the presence of angel hair, uh, in conjunction with UFO sightings. And then I see this story. Uh, did UFOs in Portugal cause angel hair to fall from the sky? What is this angel hair? What is the connection to UFOs, Rosemary? It's a real mystery, and it's a genuine mystery. It's been going on for decades now. This phenomenon called angel hair has been reported since the 1950s, almost since you know the, the actual beginning of the UFO era. And it's uh, like white filaments that are seen literally falling out of the sky, often in conjunction with the sighting of uh, a craft or mysterious light in the sky. And uh, people have been able to capture some of these uh, strands. They're almost kind of cotton candy-like filaments. Sometimes uh, they disintegrate very easily. It's like as soon as they fall to the to the ground, or someone tries to pick them up, they uh, dissolve or evaporate. Or um, people have said they've even turned into kind of jelly and then kind of evaporated. Nobody knows what they are. Now the angel hair has also been seen without UFO sightings, 
which would class it as more of a Fordian phenomena. That is sort of something unknown that might be connected to the natural world. Nobody knows what this stuff is and what causes it. Um, the samples that have been uh, uh, collected and that survived have been analyzed for their chemical content, and um, they contain natural elements of Earth. So is it some sort of Earth phenomenon that gets lifted up into the sky and then dropped? Do UFOs uh, create and Do aliens create them as some sort of chemtrail? Um, Interestingly, some of the more ludicrous explanations that have been put forth, uh, sort of like the old swamp gas theories, is that these are like giant spider webs that somehow get, uh, you know, caught up into the air and uh, then trail back to Earth. I don't find that very plausible. No. <laughs> plausible at all. But this stuff seems to be making a comeback in sightings lately. Yeah, because I've never, uh, until someone mentioned it uh, at the conference, and in fact, they prefaced their question by saying, you don't hear about angel hair in conjunction with UFOs anymore. And uh, um, I know where I heard this. It was at the George Norrie's event here in Toronto, and someone asked Peter Davenport this question. And he said, that's a great point. No one has mentioned angel hair in a long time. But as you say, it's, it's making a comeback. And apparently some people theorize, some ufologists, that this angel hair may be a byproduct of a UFO propulsion system. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's open-ended in terms of what this is. And um, it, it certainly could be a possibility that uh, they're generated by some sort of uh, energy uh, that UFO craft uh, put out in in our dimension. It's you know like a byproduct that gets spewed out, um, but we simply don't know. And uh, it's it's probably going to be a mystery that's going to last for a very long time. I don't think we're going to get an answer to it anytime soon. But why these things happen in waves? That's that's another matter. And I've I've noticed that about paranormal phenomena in general is that things happen in waves. And then uh, the phenomena seem to go away for a while, and then they come back in another wave. And that's what's happening now. Uh, there's a new uh, TV show, reality TV show, called Ghost Inside My Child. And uh, one of the episodes features a four-year-old Virginia boy who uh, is claimed to have had a past life as a Marine killed in 1983. Uh, and this is being prompted largely by his parents. Now, are they just publicity-seeking uh, individuals, or is there some merit to this a story of reincarnation, because there have been some remarkable cases of children uh, claiming to have had a past life and in, in having vivid details. There's a tremendous amount of evidence for young children having uh, recalls of past lives that have then been able to be proven and uh, documented, that, that the detail they recall is historically accurate. And overall, I like that show. I don't like the fact that they call it the ghost inside of my child because it has nothing to do with ghosts. It's about um, memories of previous incarnations. So uh, the story, uh, the overall uh, idea of children having these recollections is on very sound footing. Uh, thousands and thousands of these sorts of cases have been investigated for decades. Uh, this particular story does have a few holes in it. Uh, the child seems to have some uh, very good recollections that can't be explained naturally. Uh, his parents did go looking for an explanation. They contacted the show. Uh, the show is always looking for cases. 
and uh, there seems to be some uncertainty as to uh, whether or not uh, the child is identifying this particular life or the parents did, or the show did. And according to parents, it was the show who came up with this previous personality of a Marine who died in uh, Beirut in 1983, uh, and um, that it wasn't the child himself who uh, identified himself. And uh, there were some flaws in the way they asked the child to identify photographs of uh, you know his previous self and uh, other soldiers that um, uh, were in the same disaster. So story has a few holes, but overall, um, children do have these spontaneous memories of past lives, and um, they do provide some very compelling evidence for the fact that we do have multiple incarnations. So I mean, there's certainly there were some flawed investigative techniques in this case because they were. Um, you know, sort of, I, I guess, the equivalent of leading the witness. Um, but they were trying to, I guess, based on the clues that this young boy was giving them, the producers, that is, or the showrunner uh, on, on the TV show, were trying to find a match, and they came up with this Sergeant Lewis. So, uh, I mean, what are the, some of the other possible explanations if this wasn't a past life uh, that he was remembering? Um I mean, do you think it was just the child is, is fantasizing, or, or what, what are we to make of this? Uh, you know, it's really hard to put together a good skeptical scenario. Now, the, the boy's only four years old, so uh, he's not going to have good analysis and logic skills anyway for uh, sorting through evidence. Um, but um, w- one possibility that the, the skeptics would say is, well, he saw something on TV and um, childhood imagination, you know, got carried away. Uh, so he's just acting out some, some sort of play acting. Um, where these cases start to fall apart from a skeptical perspective is when children can remember very um, good specifics uh, that you can't find any accounting for, like addresses, uh, the names of uh, former family members and relatives, uh, especially if they're completely unknown to uh, the present family, and uh, specific details about how the previous personality uh, died. And there are, uh, as I mentioned, thousands of these cases that uh, have been investigated that have that kind of evidence. So um, it could very well be that uh, he's captured some some fragments of memories. Now, um, just because a, a child remembers something from a past life uh, doesn't mean they're going to remember all of the details. And we have many more cases on record of children and adults as well who have fragments of memories. That's true. And uh, so um, this case, I think, is, is very plausible. Uh, as as uh, we've we've mentioned, you know, some flaws in the uh, the investigation part of it, but um, the premise for the the, po- the potential for this uh, being a reincarnated marine uh, is very plausible. Absolutely. Listen, uh, Rosemary, always appreciate your time. Uh, wishing you and yours a merry Christmas and a happy New Year, and we'll talk to you in 2015. 
And the same to you, Richard. Thank you so much. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production, Albert Vinzel uh, for uh, story producing, and all of you for listening. Back next week with uh, Jonathan Kahn to talk about the uh, the actual date of Christ's birth, not December 25th, but we'll find out when our Lord was in fact born. And we'll also talk about uh, the secret anti-gravitic technology of the Nazis with George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.